0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com/give. Good morning. Any guesses at how long we've been at Genesis? No, September seventh was the last or the first time that a sermon uh, here was preached in this current series. And of course, as you can tell by now, the book of Genesis is quite an incredible book. Uh, we've been going at it for six or seven months, um, and we're only in the ninth chapter. And despite the fact of that, we're only in the ninth chapter of the Bible. An enormous amount of stuff has happened. What is some of that stuff? Well, first of all, obviously, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He planted a garden and put Adam and Eve in it to rule it and to enjoy it. Adam and Eve sinned, and because of Adam's sin, all of mankind was cursed, and Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. We also read later that the very first brothers recorded in Scripture did not get along very well. Uh, Cain, the older brother, murdered his younger brother Abel And after the story of Cain and Abel We we read about the genealogies of the families of Adam And there's a lot of really old guys in those genealogies Eventually we come to chapter 6 in which God records That the earth was completely corrupt And filled with the sin and wickedness of mankind And so he decides to destroy all of mankind except for noah and his family noah is called in scripture a preacher of righteousness and he preaches to the people and he is commanded by god to build an ark and his family enter he and his family enter the ark when the floods begin and all of the earth is covered and only the only survivors are noah and his family and when the flood finally subsides noah and his family emerge And they worship God together. God promises never to destroy the earth again. And he commands Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply. A brief history of the world. And so by the time we come to our text today in the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis, God has created the world, destroyed it, and is now in the process of recreating it once again. Instead of Adam and Eve, we now have Noah and his wife and his three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham, and his sons' wives. From that family, we can trace the origin of all mankind. Now let's read our passage for today, beginning in uh, chapter 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. Then Noah began farming and planted planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside, But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now there are a number of parallels between the story of Adam and Eve at the creation of the world and the story of Noah and his sons at the recreation of the world. The first thing we read in this passage is that from the sons of Noah, the whole earth was populated. Now, God was in the business of creating, right? And so in both cases, God could very well have created all the people necessary to populate the earth. But in both cases, instead, God chooses to start out with a very small group of people and he commands them to be fruitful and to multiply and to populate the earth. So in human history, we have two instances of the entire population of the world being reduced down to a very small group and then being commanded to, uh, to multiply. Now, it's no surprise to any of you that we're being pressed on every side by our culture today Uh, to think that the presence of mankind on the earth is a stain or a blot or a blemish. Sodomite sexuality, homosexual sexuality, is now the cool type of sexuality, not uh, not least of which the reason is because it's sterile, and that sterility is good. There's no offspring, and that's seen as a good thing. And so it's helpful, as Tim says for us to see, the uh, for, for God to record this story for us and for us to realize, to recognize from it, that having children is an act of faith and an act of obedience. Sounds scandalous to our ears to hear that it's an act of obedience, but that's, that's the case. <clears throat> so we're commanded from the very outset to be fruitful and multiply. Now, here's another parallel with the first creation story. Just like in the Garden of Eden, fruit is at the center of this story as well. God planted a garden and put Adam and Eve in it to cultivate it and to make it wonderful. And what is the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? He becomes a farmer and he plants a vineyard. Now, I would guess that uh, Noah planted many other crops But scripture doesn't record any of that. It doesn't record that he planted corn or beans or uh, wheat. Instead, we have the first mention in scripture of a man planting a vineyard and enjoying the fruit of the vine. And again, what is the helpfulness of this passage? What are we supposed to learn? Well, we're supposed to learn that we're supposed to be reminded from this, that God has given us this world to cultivate and to enjoy. Now, as I talk about the fruit of the vine, wine and alcoholic beverages, my goal today is to prick both the conscience of those who abstain and those who partake, those who don't drink alcohol and those who do. So, in many places, uh, we read in scripture and in this particular story we have both a commendation of strong drink that it's a good thing valuable and yet we also have a dire strong warning against its misuses and so what's going on here in many places in scripture we read of the benefits of strong drink for instance the psalmist records that god causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad. There are many instances in scripture, not least of which is the example of uh, Jesus turning water into wine at a, at a wedding, of using wine and other alcohol, and well, I guess that would be the main one, wine, as uh, to enjoy a festival or a party. And just think of Noah planting a vineyard. I mean, of all the things you would think of that need to be planted right away so that you can eat to live, right? Grapes is not one of them. They're delicious. They're good for making wine. They're not high on the list of life-sustaining food, right? And yet, this is precisely what he does. He plants a vineyard. He's extravagant and plants a vineyard so that he can make wine to make Glad the heart of man. So God has given us the fruit of the land to enjoy, and it's pleasing to God when we use it well, appropriately, to rejoice. And of course, there's the yeah, but, right? There's a big yeah, but coming. All of what I said is true, and what I'm about to say doesn't take away from any of it, but we also must take heed lest we fall. Noah this preacher of righteousness, didn't just drink, but he got drunk. And what did he do when he got drunk? He uncovered himself in his tent. So there's a few things I want you to notice about this. First of all, please pay attention to the dangers of alcohol. There are many warnings in scripture about alcohol. There are many stories in scripture that end with terrible pain and sorrow and suffering because of the use of alcohol. In Proverbs 23, it says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. So the wine which was meant to make his heart glad and to aid in the rejoicing before God for, in thanksgiving for the things that God has given us instead is the source of terrible sorrow for Noah. <clears throat> now, uh, it, is, it happens to be little five this week. And so if you're a student at IU, uh, pay attention, right? Little Five is Little Five Hundred is the one of the well happens every day of the year probably at IU, but it's one of the times on the campus of Indiana University when it's seemed appro- it seems appropriate to all the students to give themselves completely to alcohol to drunkenness. And uh, I read a post on uh, the college website by Alex. Uh, he talked about. Uh, in a, uh, one of the dorms, there's a poster, right? And it's trying to warn. you know, the, the Indiana University... Um, so, sorry, back up for a second. I, the curriculum of Indiana University, I don't believe, is the classes or any of that. The main curriculum at Indiana University is sexual immorality, right? The main thing that young men and women are supposed to learn from Indiana University and I'm not saying this is good, of course you understand that but I think the main thing that they're supposed to learn is from all the sexual experiences that they're encouraged to have with men and with women homosexual, heterosexual, whatever and um, and so there's no shame about this kind of thing on the campus of Indiana University and the connection between drunkenness and Sexual immorality is evident, right? It's clear, very obvious. It's obvious from scripture and it's obvious from the campus of Indiana University. Where there's drunkenness at a party, there's likely, very likely sexual immorality. Now, back to Alex and his blog post. Uh, In one of the dorms is a poster where the university is trying desperately to keep the kids from drinking themselves drunk as a skunk. And so what is the justification that they are use? What is the argument that they're putting forward? Well, the, the argument boils down to the number of calories that are contained in alcoholic beverages. Right? So they, they play to the vanity of the students and say, you know, you shouldn't drink so much beer because you're going to get fat. Right? This is what Indiana University is left with. This is all they have to try to convince students not to drink alcohol. But brothers and sisters, this is not the way it is supposed to be with Christians. And I exhort you, particularly if you're on the campus of Indiana University, you should take the opportunity to walk uh, without blemish in this regard. Do not give yourself to drunkenness. Because again, drunkenness in scripture and very obviously on in the campus of Indiana University leads not only to terrible sin in and of itself, drunkenness is a sin, of course, in and of itself, but also to all manner of sexual immorality. And I, again, I think it's important to point out that this, is the central, this sexual immorality is the central curriculum of Indiana University. If you think of, for instance, in our culture today, what are you allowed to disagree about? Actually, you're allowed to disagree about a fair number of things. You can be uh, on various sides on the question of economics or maybe the political spectrum. You can, you can, vary, you can have different uh, opinions about f- various philosophies or whatever, schooling, whatever. You can believe all those things and yet still be respectable, right? But when you come to this issue of sex we're beginning to feel, we've already begun to feel the pressure that is put on Christians to silence, to be silenced on the topics of sexuality, particularly things like uh, um, homosexual marriage is the big one today, but there's also uh, whether or not homosexuality is a sin, whether or not Christians will be able to speak of it as a sin, there's abortion, as a topic, feminism, these are the pivotal battles of our day and these battles are not won simply by argumentation, they're won by Christians walking humbly before God and living holy lives, abstaining from sexual immorality. So if the Indiana University gets you as students to partake of the sexual immorality of the campus they've won the battle already, they don't have to make arguments. Right? They've got your consciences. So be careful. Be careful of the use of alcohol. And be careful to, to resist the temptations that are coming to you on the campus of Indian University. And of course that goes for all the rest of us. Even if you're not on, on campus. So Noah planted a vineyard, got himself drunk and uncovered himself within his tent. Now, are we supposed to learn from this story to despise Noah? The answer, of course, is no. Uh, The Bible records, and this is quite an interesting thing. The Bible records that Noah died when he was 950 years old. He was nearly 1,000 years old. Do you even have any idea what was going on 1,000 years ago? That's enough time for like three civilizations to come and go. Just, it's an amazing amount of time to even think about. And yet, what are the stories in the Bible that are recorded about Noah? Can you even imagine the stories that this guy probably has? Over a thousand year lifetime? It's amazing to even think about. And yet, of all the things that could have been put in Scripture, God chose to record a story of him being a preacher of righteousness, building the ark and then getting drunk in his tent after after coming through the flood. So what are we supposed to learn from this? As as Pastor Bailey says, again, God wasn't foolish in the way he put together scripture. He gave us this word to be helpful to us. Well, first of all, it's common to think that if we could just get back to the pristine way that the world was intended to be, when it was first created then we'd be righteous you know you think of all the people that uh, want to go live in a commune or, or the men who want to just go back to nature because they're tired of their work and, and their family and they're just all these stresses are bringing out the worst in them and if they could just go back to way the, the way things used to be um, then, then they'd be alright now It's a foolish thought, right? Noah, of all people, had the perfect opportunity to create the perfect utopian society, right? He was it. He could have done it. And instead of creating the ideal society, we find him drunk in his tent. Now, even if we don't live on a commune, we do this wishing, this projecting of our own sin and and wickedness very, very often, we blame the pressures of everyday life, we blame the television, we blame the, the, the culture, we blame our parents. We say, if only our politicians weren't so corrupt, then, then I'd be righteous and I'd walk humbly with my God. And of course, it's a joke. It's a joke. You cannot run fast enough or far enough to get away from the wickedness that is in your heart for which you need to go before God and repent. This is particularly strong when we have children and we begin to want to protect them from the evils and dangers of the world and we think if we just put them in a Christian school or maybe if we just homeschool them we'll we'll have the perfect setting for God's righteousness to flourish in our children. And of course it's bunk, right? It's bunk. You cannot run, you cannot hide. The, the reality is that we must pay attention to this story and take heed to it, be humble, lest we fall and repent of our sin. It's also interesting to point out that uh, that, this, that this fall, this sin of, of uh, Noah's, came. after him being delivered through the flood. And isn't that the way? Isn't it the way that the greatest temptations that we'll face very often will come on the heels of our greatest victories when our guard is down, right? When our guard is down, we'll let things slip and we'll fall into sin. We should not despise Noah. God honors him in his word as a preacher of righteousness and we should not despise those who are in authority over us when they sin. Instead of pointing out their sin and and making much of it, dishonoring them, we should honor them. Now, in verse 22, we're introduced to the sin of Ham. Our passage records that Ham saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers about it. Now there are many theories about the precise nature of Ham's sin. What was it exactly? And one of the reasons that there are a number of theories about it is because it seems like the curse that is, that is given as a result of Ham's sin seems so strong in, in comparison. We don't understand the gravity of it. And so here are a few of the, the, the ideas. Some say that Ham's sin is incest with his mother. According to uh, a couple passages in Leviticus that warn against incest, incest They use the the euphemism to uncover the nakedness of your father. And that euphemism means to to have sexual relations with your mother, right? The Levitical passage is warning the Israelites against that abhorrent practice. And so it uses that euphemism, uncover the nakedness of your father. And so they think that maybe this passage is referring to something similar. Some say that Ham actually did something physical to his father. It could be that he did something sexual um, or that he committed some violent act against his father. And those who hold this view point out that afterwards Noah, when he woke up, it says that he realized what his son had done to him. And so they say that, well, he must have done something physical to, to Noah. Now I don't find these arguments compelling and why is that the case? In regard to the argument for incest, the actual language is just different, right? Again, the, the language in Leviticus is that they, they use the word uncover the nakedness of your father. And here it simply says that he saw his father's nakedness. I also don't think that Ham's sin required him to touch Noah in any way. If Ham did something to his father, why would it rectify the situation to have the other two brothers simply walk backward and cover their father without looking at him. No, the best, most plausible understanding of this story is that Ham went into into Noah's tent and looked at his naked father. Ham's sin, first of all, was to go into his tent and see the nakedness of his father. (laughs) And again, this helps to explain why the narrative is so careful to specify that Shem and Japheth walked backwards and did not look On Noah's nakedness. It makes the remedy make sense. They walk back, they don't look at him, and they cover his nakedness. Now, this story is difficult for us to understand because it centers around two concepts that Americans have no appreciation for. The first is the shame of nakedness, and the second is the requirement in Scripture to honor our parents, our grandparents, our ancestors. The fancy word for this is filial piety, right? Filial, having to do with being a son or a daughter and piety, righteousness. So the the righteous filial piety refers to how sons and daughters honor their parents and their ancestors. So we have no idea, we have no understanding of the shame of nakedness and we have no understanding of what it means to honor our parents, So first, the the shame of nakedness. Here, we have another parallel with the the Garden of Eden, right? If you go back to the story of the Garden of Eden, uh, it was God who discovered Adam and Eve after they had sinned, and what did they feel? What what were Adam and Eve experiencing? They They were deeply ashamed, right? And what did they say to God? They hid and they said, we're ashamed because we're naked naked we're naked and God said who told you that you were naked and then the sin that Adam committed and Adam and Eve commit had committed comes out like Adam Noah felt the shame of nakedness the shame of our nakedness is connected with our sin and in this case it is Noah's son Ham who discovers his father's nakedness Now, of course, we don't understand the shame of nakedness because we're numb to it. Our advertisers know that sex sells, and so naked bodies are are shown constantly in our magazines, on our television screens, on our computers. And our attitudes towards clothing and and nakedness is simply patterned after the culture that we're in. we're not distinct about this as Christians, and that's to our shame. Now, there's a few things that I want us to, to pay attention to here practical considerations that come out of this. First, obviously, we need to turn off the TV or close the computer. If we are a people that give ourselves to sexual sin on our screens and our televisions, we will be judged by God, just like the judgment that is, that is seen here in this, in this passage. We must have a tender conscience about what we see with our eyes and turn away from it. I know it's everywhere, it's everywhere, but we're called to be a unique people, a separate people, so we must have tender consciences and pray and ask that God will give us tender consciences about what we see and turn away from it. We must have a tender conscience about our clothing also. Now I'm not going to tell the men in this room whether or not it's appropriate to wear a shirt when you play basketball, but I want the question to enter your mind, right? We should all, men, women, be thinking about what we wear. Just because it's normal for people in our culture to be naked in public does not mean that it's good or normal for Christians to do that. Obviously, uh, it's perhaps unique for you men to think about this at all, you should, but it's more often talked about with our ladies and, and I won't hesitate to bring it up again with you ladies. Are you thinking about covering yourself and a, a, about appropriate modesty with what you wear? Are you thinking about what you wear particularly as the weather gets warmer and as you might go to the beach? We're called to cover ourselves. Nakedness is shameful. It's shameful. Another practical consideration has to do with how we live with our families, with our family in the intimacy of our home. You'll notice that Noah was not on the beach when his son came in and saw his nakedness. He was in his tent. When we live in close proximity with each other as family, it's easy for the guard to come down, and for uh, for the guard to come down when it comes to nakedness within the family. And this begins with mom and dad first and foremost. Do you cover yourself, mom and dad, when you walk around the house? Do you insist that the children knock before entering your room? How careful are you to teach your children to be modest and to cover them- themselves? And are you considering how to create a modesty panel between your sons and your daughters? All of this, of course, is heightened with large families, but it applies to smaller families as well. If you've been at this church any length of time, you know that we've addressed from the pulpit the terrible sexual sins that come, that happen within families. And of course, uh, it's, it's what we see here, right? This is a family affair. And we must be careful within our families to be modest. Now, in the case of Adam and Eve, Scripture records that God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In, in, our, in the case of our passage today, Ham refuses to cover his father, but instead broadcasts the shame of his father to the whole world, right? His brothers. Now, if it's shameful for a son to see the nakedness of his father, surely it's shameful to be naked in front of others. But in our culture today, we're used to calling good evil and evil good, and so it's seen as courageous or bold or what have you to come out and be naked in public. But that's simply a culture that has grown completely callous and hardened in their sin. In Romans, remember, it says that God gives up a culture to depravity and to sexual immorality. And this is the fruit in our culture of our sexual immorality. It's seen as courageous to be naked in public. It's insane, right? The very things that we should be ashamed about and repent of, we're glorying in. And, of course, this is exactly the same with our sin, we must cover ourselves, and we need to pray to God that God will heal our consciences and make them tender again. Second, honoring your father and mother, filial piety. Now, um, Scripture says teaches us that we are to obey our parents in the Lord, for this is right. Right, honor your father. We sang about we sang the Ten Commandments earlier. It says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which your Lord, the Lord your God gives to you. Parents, we must teach our children to honor us and that makes us sound like monsters in our current day and age that they would speak respectfully and stand up when we come in the room or whatever but they need to honor us and, and children, you must honor your parents. This is good. This is p- part of your worship of God and obedience to God. Now, how did Ham disrespect his father? How did he dishonor his father? Well, first of all, by going into the tent and looking at his nakedness, and then by repeating uh, to his brothers what had happened. Rather than honoring his father and covering his nakedness, he broadcasts it. And again, this is an interesting parallel with the Garden of Eden because God, when he sees Adam and Eve, he covers them, right? You remember that? He makes, takes animal skin and he covers their nakedness and this reminds us of the way that God, through Jesus Christ, covers our sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, Ham broadcasts the shame of his father and this is very much like the way that Satan uh, magnifies our shame. Satan is referred to as the accuser, right? Right? The accuser of the brethren. And we ourselves do this. When we see maybe a, 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 an, um, someone in authority over us that we resent, we delight when they fall. You know, that's a wicked thing to do, but we do that sometimes. Uh, we're delighted when we see the righteous fall and we tell others about it and we gossip about it. That's, that's terrible wickedness. And it's not the way that God has cared for us. Now, Ham is the youngest, and it says that when Noah woke up, he knew what Ham had done to him. And then Noah, like many other patriarchs, gives blessings and curses to his son. And so I'm running out of time, but um, we're going to go very briefly through these curses and blessings. First, it says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Now, what's the first thing that should jump out at you at this, uh, this curse? Loud. Who's Canaan, right? What, what, what does Canaan have to do with this? Who was the one that sinned? It was Ham, his father, Canaan's father. Now, um, if you look back at the passage, it's really quite interesting uh, how often it reminds us that Canaan is the son of Ham, that Ham is the father of Canaan. It's the point cannot be missed if you're reading it carefully you cannot miss the point that the author of this story is trying to tell us that Canaan is the son of Ham so Ham committed the sin and yet Canaan is the one that is cursed and we rub- our noses are rubbed in that constantly so why why if Ham committed the sin isn't he cursed instead of his son there's a few ways to answer that first of all it's very common in scripture uh, to for a curse on a particular man to be visited upon his descendants, Of course, it is a curse on Ham for his children to be cursed, right It's no compliment to me if my sons are cursed that's That's a terrible thing for a father to have to undergo um, but beyond that, we read even in the song in the Ten Commandments which we sung today that uh we read that. God's judgments are visited upon the third and fourth generation of those that hate him. Right? And of course, the the biggest example of this is the sin of Adam. Because of Adam's sin, we all fall. Right? This is what's called, a fancy word for it, is federal headship. We are federally in Adam, in his sin. and. And Canaan was federally in Ham in his sin. Another answer to this is that Ham was the youngest son of Noah, and Canaan was Ham's youngest son, and so the curse falls most heavily on on Canaan. Now again, the Jews reading this story would have understood the significance of all the actors and the history behind this and we need to understand some of that also. So, historically, who are the Canaanites and why does it matter? Right? The, the, Jewish, the Jews would have known this. Now, it sounds a little silly to say, but the Canaanites were the people that lived in the land of Canaan, right? There's lots of descendants of, the, of, of Canaan, um, Noah's grandson, and their, the, their names of their tribes are mentioned in various places in the Bible. Um, but, in general, they're the people that lived in the land of Canaan. Now, what's the significance of the land of Canaan? Just shout it out. It's the promised land, right? It is the land that is promised to, the, to Israel that God will give them. Indeed, when um, when God comes to Abram, who later becomes Abraham, the father of the Jews, right? Right? Uh, when God comes to Abram, he is Abram is in Canaan. And God promises him and says, you're going to go out from this place and be a sojourner and then you will return and take the land of Canaan. And um, just to give you an example of the people that lived in the land of Canaan, it says in Genesis 15, 16, in the midst of God speaking to Abram and telling him of this promise, he says... Then in the fourth generation they, that is to say Abram's descendants, will return here to the land of Canaan for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now the Amorites were just one of the tribes descended from Canaan. And um, one of the, when, when God finally does bring the people of God back into the land of Canaan, one of the things he's constantly warning the israelites about is the sexual depravity and immorality of the people of Canaan. He warns them not to take part in it, but instead to 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 in fact to destroy the people that are there so that the israelites can occupy the land and take it as theirs. And so a Jew reading this story would have understood completely what it uh, the significance of Ham committing a sexual sin and for that curse to fall on his son, Canaan. Now, this is a concept that we as Americans, if you're a good American, you hate with a perfect hatred, right? God is preparing, even in this story, We begin to see how God is preparing, and I'll get to the blessings in a minute. But we begin to see how God is preparing the people of Israel for their return to the land of Canaan. While at the the very same time, he's preparing the Canaanites for destruction. I mentioned the tribe of the Amorites, right? It said that the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was waiting for their sin to be so awful, to be so terrible for those, that period of time where Abram was a sojourner and the people of God were sojourners, that when they came back, it was finally time to wipe them out and destroy them. And this is very hard for us. Admit it. If you're blipping over this, you're not awake, right? This is hard for us to understand and to trust in God that God would prepare a people for salvation while at the same time prepares a people for destruction, now, what are, the blessing, what are the blessings that are given to Shem? We read in verse 26 uh, of the, she, uh, the blessing that's given to Shem and the most interesting thing about it is what? What's the most striking thing about this blessing? Speak loud. Okay, that, uh, I don't think that's the most striking thing. It's not given to Shem. Very good, that's right. Who does he bless here? He bless, blesses the Lord, right? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And, uh, but of course, the next line helps us to understand this, right? It says, uh, it specifies that God is the God of Shem. And so, Shem is... Uh, Abram is a descendant of Shem. So again, the, the, the Jews reading this story would have understood that perfectly. Uh, Psalm 144 says, How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And indeed, it's true. Abram, who is later named Abraham, is a descendant of Shem. And so, of course, that means that Jesus is also a descendant of, of Shem. So as, you see, so as you can see, God is indeed The God of Shem. Now, finally, the blessing of Japheth. Um, It says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, many commenters consider the seed of Japheth to to refer to the Gentiles who would, as promised, expand to fill the world. Furthermore, and also as promised, they would depend for their blessing upon Shem. For it says, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The Gentiles would get their covering and protection from the Jews, from the seed of the Jews. And so I think that this refers to, in a prophetic way, the conversion of the Gentiles. Now Paul speaks about this uh, in, a, in a with a different analogy in Romans, he says that the Gentiles are grafted in, which means they're taken from a different plant and added to this other plant. Right? It's a it's a pretty intimate. It's a plant, of course, but it's a pretty intimate analogy. And in the same way, uh, it says that the 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 sons of Japheth, that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. That there, that um, when you come into a tent. You're intimate. You're part of the family. And this is the way that God has brought Gentiles, all the rest of us, into his family. Now, as I finish today, um, I want to talk about something called the curse of Ham. Uh, Because it's, it's a significant uh, debate, discussion in the, in the history of our country. So, speaking very generally, uh, it appears that those of African descent very likely came from Ham. Okay? Those of Semitic descent, like the Jews and the Arabs, very likely came from Shem. And those that you might consider of European descent potentially came from Japheth. Now... My caveat here is that I'm speaking with very broad strokes and I'm leaving all enormous swaths of people in this world out, right? I I didn't even mention. Um, But Pastor Baker's gonna preach next week and he is a very competent biblical scholar and will answer all your questions (laughs) about that. (laughs) Um, But it's important to think about the descendants of mankind, because remember, all the descendants of mankind came from these three sons of Noah. And, uh, and the Bible, so the reason, I, the reason this passage is significant in the history of our nation is because it has been used, it was used by slaveholders to justify slavery. And to not only justify slavery, but to say that forever, that people with dark skin Uh, those descendant from Ham were supposed to be subjugated to people with light skin, white skin. And they used as their uh, justification three, they pointed to three reasons. They said um, that the curse of servitude was not intended just for Canaan, but for all of Ham's descendants. Uh, they They also pointed to the meaning of the word ham in the Hebrew. It means black or burnt or hot. Um, And they took that to mean a specific reference to black skin. And then they also said that that God commanded that these descendants be slaves to Japheth, who represented in their minds the white races. And so, um, so this was used to justify slavery. Now, how do we answer these arguments? I think the response is fairly obvious. The curse is very specific to Canaan, and again, Israel... Any, any Jew reading this story would have understood this in the context of, of uh, the Israelites and their nemesis, the people of Canaan, right? They, they would have, a Jew would have understood this as uh, speaking about the people of God coming back into the promised land and the friction that that would have caused. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's very clear um, that... Even I I was reading um, Dabney, uh, who was an apologist for the South before and after the Civil War, and he doesn't even make very much, put very much stock into this argument. Um, And so, uh, and indeed, many places in Scripture, uh, in the in the Old Testament, I don't have time to talk about this about race relations, really, in the Old Testament, but. There are many places in scripture that speak about people of different skin color and, um, and it's, it's simply not borne out in scripture that this is some kind of prophecy that's supposed to be held in perpetuity uh, forever and ever. Um, instead, this, this curse really is directed for Canaan and his descendants and is related to the, uh, the restoration of God's people to the promised land. Now, even as I say that though, and we remove, we, we dispense with the argument for slavery and we say, you know, they were wrong, that's ridiculous. Um, it really doesn't actually help us. It doesn't help us uh, be more sensitive in our current day and age. And why is that? If you're still awake here, why is that? If I say that this cursing is not directed toward African Americans and so we're not justified with slavery today why does this still leave us in an awkward position in our current culture the reason is because God still uh, commanded the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites and so we still see here a judgment of, of a particular people group and so um, And so, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to God raising up a certain people for for life and a certain other people for destruction? In Romans 9, we read, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. God prepared the Canaanites for destruction while he prepared the descendants of Shem for life. And we see even in the blessing given to Japheth, the father of the Gentiles, the seed of the promise that God would, through Jesus Christ, tear down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. It says that because of Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial and resurrection, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. The only true racial and ethnic and cultural reconciliation is through the blood of Jesus Christ because first, before we can be reconciled to each other, we must be reconciled to God and that's the step that is always missed at Indiana University and other places in our culture. Right? They think that they can have reconciliation with each other without reconciliation with God. And the way that the world does it, the way that our culture tries to give us reconciliation is by pretending that differences don't exist or papering over them or what have you. We as Christians don't have to do that. We don't have to be politically correct. We can recognize differences. We can think carefully about those differences. And we can love each other because Jesus has died and has covered all of us with his blood and his righteousness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this story that teaches us many things. uh, But in particular, we thank you that because of your death and your blood, we can all now come to you trusting in your forgiveness and in your mercy. I pray, Father, that as we are reconciled to you, that we would indeed be reconciled one to another and that we would love each other and that love would cover over a multitude of sins. I pray that as we go into the world, Father, that we would not uh, be concerned about political correctness uh, or what the world says is righteousness, but instead that we would walk humbly before you, calling sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ.